be seated. Good morning. As Dr. Campbell mentioned earlier, for those of you who don't know, my name is Jack Stoffer. I've been attending this church for, I think, over six years now, and I have the pleasure of being uh, Dr. Campbell's pastoral intern as I pursue seminary and ordination. So it is a, a blessing that I'm not worthy of to preach to you all. <clears throat> if, you'll, if you will, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Jonah chapter 3. And I'll begin with the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 3. We're <clears throat> reading the entire chapter. Don't worry, it's short. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is God's word. I love the song we just sang. Because it fits so well with this passage. Because there are few things more marvelous and more beautiful to witness than a changed heart. You can see lots of amazing things if you travel the world. You, and read history, learn about a lot of great men and generals who did great things. But the reality is, a heart being changed is the most beautiful thing to witness. I, I will never forget the, the first time that someone whom I evangelized to came to Christ. I was staffing for a summer camp that traveled throughout America between my sophomore and junior year. And when I was in Illinois, there was a student um, who I got lunch with. And I asked him if he was a Christian, and he said no. I think he was in a Christian family. He just wasn't really sure about it yet. And I remember probably giving one of my worst presentations I had ever given. <laughs> and at the end, I looked at him and I said, Gabe, will you believe in Jesus? And completely to my surprise, he said yes. He said yes. There, there's nothing more wonderful to witness than a changed heart. And I bring this up because repentance that, that right response to God's word is the center of our text this morning. Arguably, in Jonah's ministry right here, is the greatest response to preaching ever recorded in history. An entire city, from the greatest to the least, 
responds, and this is an act of God. Because the New Testament teaches us that even repentance is a gift. So whenever you have had that deep sorrow and contrition over your sin, where you look inside yourself and you weep because of what you see there, do you realize that's a gift? That is a gift that not everyone is given. And do you realize how precious it is? We often think lightly of repentance, but it's my prayer that through our text this morning, we would be guided to learn what is a right response to God's word and learn from the ministry of Jonah. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we already heard this morning, teach us to rend our hearts and not our garments. Father, I pray that the sin within our lives, not just the sin in the world, but the sin in our very souls would cause us to weep. Lord, please teach us how to respond rightly to your word. And may we learn from the Ninevites who lived oh so many years ago. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you notice, we're in Jonah chapter 3, in the middle of a series. Whenever I've had the chance to preach, I've been walking slowly through this book. Uh, Just as a short recap, if you recall, the book begins by Jonah so wisely hearing the word of God and then deciding to disobey and going the opposite direction. What ensued was then two chapters of Jonah being literally chased down by the hand of God, by a storm and by sailors and by a whale. And then finally, much to his surprise, the whale spit him out and he lived. Personally, I think he thought he was going to die in there. So to Jonah's surprise, God was not done with him yet, which brings us to our text this morning. So look at me at verses 1 through 2. We'll see here the recommissioning of Jonah. These verses say, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. If you notice, the wording here is identical to the first wording that God said to Jonah in the first chapter. Identical. This right here is a redo. Jonah got a second chance. And we have to think when we read this, why Jonah? Not many other people in the Bibles got second chances to the degree that Jonah did. Like, what comes to my mind are Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. It says that they offered strange fire. They, They mishandled their job in the tabernacle and God struck them dead. They didn't get a second chance. Jonah did. So no doubt, he has a little bit of a different perspective on things now than he did in the beginning. God showed profound mercy upon him. God granted him repentance. So note with me right at the beginning of our passage, the mercy of God. His wonderful pity upon his people. And this second chance that Jonah gets, no doubt, may be a reminder to many of you here. I've heard countless stories from older Christians when assessing their past and they come to some conclusion like, why was I freed from this? Why did God take me from that group of friends or from that sin? Or why did God save my life when he didn't save others? This actually happened to one of the founders of the Methodist church, John Wesley. His father was a pastor and when he was, I think, six years old, His entire house caught fire 
And everyone else was taken out immediately. And then someone realized John is still at the top floor. And through a bunch of people climbing on top of each other, they rescued him from the, from the house before it burned down. And for the rest of his life, he remembered that. Why me? God, why did you save me? Perhaps you've been given a second chance in your life. A moment where God saved you from a fate or from a sin that other people weren't so fortunate to be saved from. May we be thankful to God because that's how he acts sometimes. He gives second chances. So look with me at the next two verses, verses 3 through 4. We see the preaching of Jonah. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Good job, Jonah. <laughs> now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah right here is a disciplined man. His attitude towards God's call is a little different than it was in the beginning. There's no hesitation. In fact, it says Jonah did exactly according to the Lord. And we see right here the benefit and the necessity of discipline in a Christian's life. Spiritual discipline is one of the greatest blessings God can give. As an example, I've been able to witness uh, my nephew, my oldest sister's son, learn how to be disciplined. He's two years old. <laughs> and I've seen this play out a couple times. I can't remember exactly what was happening. I think he kept touching something that his dad told him not to touch. So he touched it, and then he got swatted. And then the next time, you know, his dad wasn't around. I saw that look in his eye, that gleam of like, oh, I got to touch this or I'm going to die. We've all seen it in little children. And he goes for it, and then he, he hesitated. In that moment, he hesitated because he remembered the discipline that he received. Physical punishment for those who are too young to understand is not based upon some archaic method handed down by the patriarchy. Actually, it is based upon how God himself relates to his people. All through the Bible, we learn that God loves his people, like here with Jonah, to such an extent that he is willing to discipline them to change their hearts. As an example, if you go read Deuteronomy 28 today, this is what you will find. You will find that the first half is God saying, Israel, if you obey me, here is how I will bless you. And then the second half, it's a long chapter, is God saying, Israel, if you disobey me, this is precisely how I will treat you. And then the rest of the Old Testament shows how God did just that. And yet when we see that in our own lives, it can be disheartening. When God disciplines us for what we did wrong, like Jonah, that's painful. So to encourage you, take heart. The Lord only disciplines those whom he loves. And parents, you should learn from Jonah's life as well. Proverbs has so many things to say about the, the, the necessity of discipline in a child's life. Folly is in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. He who hates a child spares the rod. Now, granted, with any parents, this balance of justice and mercy for young children is a difficult one. But here in Jonah, we do see a push for a, a merciful view of discipline. 
Because our God knows human hearts. He never does too little and he never does too much. Jonah would have responded to nothing less than the whale. That's how hard his heart was. And for God's child, it is a blessing that after discipline, God's child's gut response is, I will listen to you and ask questions later. That is a blessing. So Jonah's obedience here is encouraging. It's character growth. He has changed profoundly since the beginning of the book. And so Jonah's obedience leads him to the very place where in the beginning he did not want to go. Nineveh. If you recall, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And the Assyrians at this point had not taken the northern kingdom into exile. That would happen in about a hundred years. But they still were the big bad guy on the block. They had attacked Israel several times and possibly even taken over some of the cities where Jonah was raised. So there's some tension here. No doubt in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, okay, God, you've called me to be a priest to these nations, but they hate me and don't want to hear what I have to say. Perhaps that's what gave Jonah pause in the very beginning. That fear of, Lord, people in Israel hardly listen to me. <laughs> Why are you sending me to Nineveh? So Nineveh was Jonah's destination. And, and notice how it's described in verse uh, 3. It says it was an exceedingly great city, and it was a three days journey in breadth. That's a big city. Uh, my wife and I love to go walking around Anderson. It's one of our favorite pastimes, especially the downtown area. And you know, it takes like 20 minutes to do a circuit down the downtown strip, if you're going fast. A three-day journey to cover the circumference of the city. This is a big city. And as the next chapter tells us, there's more than 100,000 people who live in the city alone. So for the ancient world, this was a sprawling metropolis. And then notice with me, it says exceedingly great city. That's the way the ESV renders it, as well as the NASB. But you might notice a footnote in your Bible, because literally this phrase is, now Nineveh was a great city to God. What does this mean? This phrase usually, cause sometimes happens in the Old Testament to show greatness, greatness in size, particularly height. It's applied to trees and some other passages. But what should we take from this? Nineveh was a great city to God. Even though Nineveh was wicked, even though it was a foreign nation and God, not God's chosen people, Nineveh was important to God because there were people there who needed grace. If humans are the ones principally in need of the good news of the gospel, should not the places with tons of humans be important to us? And yet, to be honest, that's very rarely our natural response. Uh, I, I remember, because I grew up in Charleston, and I came to Anderson for school, I vividly remember the time during my sophomore year going back, driving back to Charleston, and the road that for me was once covered with trees and beautiful forests all around, all of a sudden was all apartment complexes. And I'll be honest, my first response was, what is going on to Charleston? <laughs> Why is everyone coming here? <laughs> Grumpy. And to be honest, my attitude changed in time. As I, start, as I kept driving back to Charleston, a lot of times my thoughts were, I hope everyone in that complex has a church. There's a lot of people who live there. 
in this time of rapidly growing urban areas, we, we should learn about how God views Nineveh. This should, our mindset should be something like, Lord, I know this is all changing. This does not look the way it did 50 years ago. But there are people there. Souls, eternal souls, who need to know the good news of a Savior. So regardless of how I feel, Lord, help me to believe that this place is a great city to you. At the very least, Nineveh was important because there were a lot of people there. And once again, perhaps this explains Jonah's initial discomfort in going. It's one thing to preach to a small crowd of people, which he probably did in Israel. It's another thing to preach to thousands. So this is Jonah's situation. And now we come to his great sermon. Right here, look in verse, verse 4, right at the end of it. He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word here, right before his sermon, called out, is that a Hebrew word which means to announce, to proclaim. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that the New Testament uses to say preached. Like when Jesus preached to people, when Paul preached to the cities, the same word. So before we dive into what Jonah's saying, to help us understand, let me, let me ask a question. Maybe you've never thought about this. What is preaching? What is preaching? Why do services always have a sermon? A time where someone comes up and talks to you for a long time. Think about it. Nearly every Protestant church tradition... Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, Methodist, they all dedicate a significant portion of their Sunday service to preaching. So what is it? Is preaching a lecture? Is preaching just someone smart getting up and telling you a bunch of things of the Bible that you don't know? Or, or is preaching exhortation? Is it someone telling you, you need to do this, stop doing that? Both of these are true. Let's see how our passage answers this question of what is preaching. So first, no, notice with me how short and succinct Jonah's message is. It's not long. It's not complicated. Yet 40 days, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed and God will do it. There's no intro. There's no fancy illustration. No story. He doesn't even call them to repent. He's just stating a fact. Simply, God has seen your sin, and he will respond. That's the essence of his sermon. And remember, this is the message that God gave him. So before we complain, and make, no, Jonah, you could have done better. No, this is what God gave him to say. Jonah's message was short, blunt, and judgmental, because that's what God told him to say. So what do we learn about preaching from this? Preaching is not a discussion. Preaching is not a round table panel where we discuss, what do we, what do we think is going on here? Preaching is not a Q&A session. Preaching is nothing less than the heralding of God's very words through the mouth of, a, of an appointed messenger. Jonah here is publicly proclaiming God's words that were given to him. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? 
It means that when a pastor or when a preacher faithfully expounds God's word, you should listen to him as if God himself were speaking to you. That's precisely what it means. Just to, as an example to illustrate this, if you have your copy of God's word, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which Dr. Campbell preached through this past semester. Verse 13 says this. Paul is commending this church that he loves. And look at verse 13. He says, And we, Paul and his fellow compatriots, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, preaching, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So right there, Paul is saying, when me and my fellow preachers came to you, I rejoice that when you heard me speak faithfully from the word, you received it as what it is, which is God's word and not mine. This is what preaching is. Uh, the question number 89 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think, explains the, the punch of preaching very well. The question is this. How is the word of God made effectual for salvation? And here's the answer. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners. And the very Word itself, preacher, it comes from this ancient context of the word herald. In, in ancient times, if a king was going to come and visit a city, he rarely would show up unannounced. Rather, he would send his herald into the city to cry, Hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming. Get ready. And this was not a discussion. <laughs> this was not a, hey, can you go back to your king, tell him we're not ready yet? No. That's not what heralds do. And the people's respect for the king was shown in how they took the message of his herald. And similarly, preaching all throughout the centuries of the church has this blend. This blend of Truth and exhortation. Faith, love. What you should believe and what you should do. A good definition of preaching simply is exhortative teaching. Exhortative teaching, which is what Jonah is doing here. And that's what, It's implied. Yet 40 days and all this will be destroyed. Uh, but let's look at it. There are, some, there are some unique aspects to Jonah's sermon here that I think we should uh, remember. First of all, Jonah's sermon has one aspect which is unique to it that sermons today do not have. It has a definitive timeline. It has a definitive timeline. Jonah is saying, 40 days, start your stopwatches, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. We don't have that in our sermons nowadays. What we can say is someday you will die or Jesus will return, but we don't have a timeline in the same way that Jonah's did which sometimes leads to a weaker response from us, which is not how it should be, but it is a reality. Notice the second aspect. Jonah's sermon is lacking something that every modern sermon should have. A promise of mercy. Jonah is simply saying a fact. In 40 days, you'll be destroyed. There's no exhortation. He's not explicitly telling them to do something. However, in today's day and age, when we preach Christ, we preach the promise of mercy that if you turn from your sin, 
you will be shown grace. It's a big difference. So, so back to Jonah's message. I can't move on without sharing how similar God's message to the world today is to Jonah's message, even though there are differences. Because Jonah's message was, God sees your wickedness, Nineveh, and in 40 days he's coming. 40 days. And Jonah doesn't give an out. He just says it's happening. And similarly for us, the words of Christ are, God sees your sin and wickedness. He sees the sin of this world. He sees your heart and the longings you have for so many other things besides Christ. And his extraordinary mercy has stayed his hand of justice until now. Someday, Jesus will come to judge you individually for every thought, every word, and every deed. Surely some of you here this morning have hidden an unconfessed sin. Surely. Mercy alone has stayed God's hand because he sees that. There's a proverb that says, Sheol and Abaddon are laid bare before God. How much more the hearts of men. God sees what goes on within us. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Nineveh was only guaranteed 40 days. You're not even guaranteed tomorrow. Turn from your sin. Believe in God. Christ is much more precious than whatever pleasures you can find in this life. God doesn't just want your church attendance. He doesn't just want you to read your Bible. He doesn't just want you to pray more. He wants your heart. He wants a broken heart over your sin. And yet how often is this message despised? Nineveh here is responding rationally. Nineveh responds rationally. And yet so many of us don't even take God's call for repentance seriously. Just to illustrate. Say you got a message from your boss that said, in 40 days you're fired. How would you respond? Would you, okay. No. What do I need to do? What have I done? How do I change? Say you got a letter in your house that said in one month, uh, your house is getting taken by the bank. Ah, okay. Kids, get ready. We're moving. No. You'd go and argue your case. What did I do wrong? I made my payments. Say your spouse told you, unless you change in 30 days, I'm leaving you. Oh, okay. No. (laughs) What do I need to do to make things right? And when the God of heaven cries out that his just judgment is coming and here's your way out through the cross, our first thought so often is, okay, what am I eating for lunch? When can I get back to my book? Man, I can't wait to hang out with my friends this evening and play that video game, watch that show. When we do this, we make God to be a mere vending machine of grace. God, I get your forgiveness and your grace when I want it. You stay right there. So how should we respond to preaching? Well, let's look how Nineveh responded. There's a lot to learn from them. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. We're going to see two aspects of Nineveh's response, which we should mimic. Belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. Number one, look at belief. It's simple. The people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed it. They didn't question. They didn't joke in their hearts. They didn't sideline to other issues. They heard this message and they confirmed it. They supported it. They trusted it. And we can tell just from the rest of this passage that every single one of them responded in this way, which is incredible. Isn't that awesome? It says the greatest of them to the least of them. And then it goes on to say, just in case you're doubting that that's true, here's what the king did. Jonah is a book about amazing details. And this is an amazing detail. Looking into what the king does. But belief is when you say in the depths of your soul, God, I believe what is being said of me. I believe that my sinful condition is true. Help me. Help me. Just as we sang at the beginning of this service, I love that song, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Offerings and sacrifices he does not require, but a broken and a contrite heart is acceptable to him. All other responses to God's word flow from and are defined by this initial one. Belief. Faith. And all other responses mean nothing to God. Unless it is begun by belief. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Everything that is done without faith is sin. So let's learn from the Ninevites. They heard this and thought, yes. As much as it pains me, this is true. Now look at number two, repentance. Their belief did not simply stay within them. It was not some private faith <laughs> that they kept within their house. No, this was public. It led to outward action. A true faith must grow in to action in the same way that a good tree must grow up from being a seed. It is a necessity. So notice these two initial details. It says they called a fast. Um, now fasting is a word often found in the Bible, which means the, the deliberate foregoing of food for a certain time for the purpose of seeking God. Deliberate foregoing of food for the purpose of seeking God. Um, and this is a sign of contrition throughout the Old Testament. People who are sorry and sorrowful over their sin. This is how they respond. And Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he assumes that this is a, Christ, a Christian practice. He doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. Uh, today, personally, I, fasting is kind of a, it's in now, right? Have you ever heard of all those new health things that you can do with fasting? Personally, this is an opinion. I think Christians should avoid using that language for anything but spiritual fasting. Personally. Because if everything is fasting, then nothing is. And I, I can tell you, I have not fasted much in my life, but the few times that I've had in sorrow over my sin, it has profoundly affected my soul. 
saying no to the one thing that my body says I need more than anything in order to say yes to the one thing that my soul needs more than anything. They instituted a fast. And then they also put on sackcloth, every single one of them. This would maybe be the modern equivalent of you don't wear pink to a funeral. You wear black, sorrow, dark colors. This is kind of in essence what they are doing. And by themselves, these two actions mean nothing to God. But paired with belief, they mean everything to God. And we need to remember this as an order. Belief flows to repentance. Belief flows to repentance. Because it's incredibly easy as Christians to fall into this this mindset of, I sinned, I know I shouldn't have, I'm going to go do this outward thing and it's all okay. And we, we skip the belief. We give back what we stole or we say that apology and we say, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to church this Sunday. I'm going to pray a little bit more. But no, it's, it, it needs to be the other way around. For Christians, it needs to be, God, I am a sinner. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. I need your grace. And then you give back what you stole. And then you make that apology. And then you read your Bible more. It's an important difference. I already noted how important the king's action was here. Just think with me. The number one guy in the city responded in this way and then used his power to help other people do the same. That's pretty crazy. I have never seen anything like this. Honestly, if it wasn't in God's word, I probably wouldn't believe it. That's how crazy this is. And notice some of the other things they do. He instituted a fast for everyone. Doesn't matter what you think. It says the king sat in sackcloth, but he also said, guess what? All of our animals need to fast too. (laughs) All of our animals need to sit in ashes and sackcloth. Maybe a little bit overkill there. (laughs) That's not required anywhere else in the scriptures, but it's paired with faith. It's paired with faith. And why do they do this? He says, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And here is such an important last aspect of repentance. True repentance is tied with a call for mercy. True repentance is tied with a call for mercy. Because a truly humble and contrite heart recognizes, God, even if I turn from my sin and I never do it again, you owe me nothing. And that's what the Ninevites we're saying, oh, that we responded to God's word like this. Once again, Jonah's piety in this, work, in this book is put on check by people who aren't even Israelites. How often do we implicitly refuse God's kindness? This was the Ninevites' first time ever hearing the preaching of God's word. First time, and this is how they responded. To me, this is one of the greatest benefits of evangelism. It's because when you see someone respond, having only heard one sermon in their entire life, it puts a check on your heart. God, how many sermons have I listened to? It puts a check on our heart. We are supposed to be challenged by Nineveh right here. So two quick observations before I move on to the last verse. Number one, the power of God's word. The power of God's word. What changes a heart? God's word. 
and this is why our, our services are saturated with God's word. It's one of the things that drew me to this church because what turns a sinner into a saint? God's word. What makes holy the common things of this life? God's word. Jonah maybe doubted what could happen, but God's word never returns void. And look what happened through the words, the words that the Holy Spirit worked through. Just because God doesn't always do this doesn't mean that the power is not there. So to come back to my earlier question, why do we have preaching in church? Why do you dedicate 40 precious minutes of your week listening to people speaking to you about the Bible? Because preaching more than any other avenue saves sinners. I can speak to this personally. It is biblical, but personally, every single period of growth that I have witnessed in my spiritual life almost always has come through hearing godly preaching, listening to sermons by Vody Bauckham when I was in high school, coming to this church and hearing Dr. Campbell teach me about grace, being in RUF and hearing John Boyd instruct me on how to read God's word. Those are the moments when I'm sitting there and, you know, from the preacher's perspective, Nothing's happening. But from God's perspective, everything is happening. And yet we so often passively despise that preaching. It's easy to doze off in a service. It's easy to think about your project that you're going to get to this afternoon. It's easy to start working, working through what all this week has to hold. It's easy to make fun of a preacher for his habits or, you know, their weird things that they do. It is hard to pay attention and to listen to the content of a sermon. And I challenge you all to do that. That's what the Ninevites did. And they had never heard a sermon in their life. And Jesus speaks well of them in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. He says this. And he's speaking to a city that did not receive his word. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because the men of Nineveh repented and you didn't. Wow. <laughs> Number two, the nature of repentance. A change of heart must lead to an outward change. Not, not immediate perfection, but change. Note with me how the Ninevites responded and how much we can learn from them. They inwardly believed, but it did not stop there. It flowed out to their actions. And for Christians, we're called to repent every day. Perhaps you struggle with pride, looking down on others, thinking too highly of yourself. You might intellectually know that's wrong, but have you taken steps to humble yourself? Have you asked God for mercy for that very thing that you do in your mind? Perhaps you struggle constantly with lust, a desire for sex, or the pleasures of this world, or just turning your brain off. Have you admitted that those desires are misplaced? Have you called out to God? Have you talked to another Christian about it? Have you taken practical steps to show to yourself and to the world, this sin does not rule me? Perhaps worries and anxieties are what plague your mind and your heart constantly. Have you admitted those to be sinful? That doesn't fix it, but it is step one. God, forgive me for not trusting you as I ought. And perhaps you, like Jonah, struggle to show mercy to people who are different than you. You think you've got people figured out. 
and you're perfectly comfortable to keep your distance and not interact. Have you really repented of that if you're not actively trying to love those who are unlovely? Perhaps many of us here need to repent of the fact that we don't repent as often as we should. Look at verse 10 with me. Last verse. The mercy of God. We now come to the culmination of this text, the climax. What will God do? How will the God of the universe respond to all these petty actions by this wicked city? Read with me one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. God saw what they did, and he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. Literally, that's the same word the Old Testament uses to say repent. It says God repented of this. He changed his mind. Now, God never changes. He is perfect. And yet, many times in the scriptures, the Bible uses human-like language to help us understand the punch of God's wonderful love and his character. For instance, uh, Genesis 6, before the flood, it says that God repented of the fact that he made man. He was sorry. And then verse, 1 Samuel 15, in one chapter, God says, I repent, I, I regret that I made Saul king. And then later in the same chapter, it says, the glory of Israel is not a man. He never will repent. I'm like, what? What? So what do we learn from this? We learn that there is a deep desire to show mercy within the character of God. Our God loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy, especially to penitent, humble hearts. Theologians in the past have uh, made a delineation, which I think is helpful. They're saying that mercy and love is God's normal work, while judgment and wrath is his alien work. He does both, and both are tied to his character. And yet, in a sense, we can say, that our God is eager to show mercy and reluctant to show wrath. There is a reason why when Moses came to God in Exodus 34 and said, Lord, show me your glory. God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and compassionate, passing over iniquities. But who will by no means clear the guilty? And you have both of those. God is eager to show mercy and yet he will show justice as well. Much to Jonah's chagrin, as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, the Ninevites received God's mercy and their destruction did not come. God did not owe this response to him. God's mercy is his gift. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will harden whom he will harden. So just before I close, learn from Nineveh. Repent of your sin. A greater judgment than Nineveh could ever have imagined is coming. How much more does this apply to us under Christ? There are many who avoid the gospel because they trust pridefully in their own works, but I submit to you, more people ignore the gospel because they misunderstand God's kindness. They misunderstand the riches of his mercy, and perhaps you need to hear that this morning. Our God is a God of second chances, showing mercy to thousands who love him. If Nineveh, that wicked city, can be saved, so can you. One greater than Jonah is speaking to you today, and it's not me. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and he calls you. Turn from your sin. 
Trust in the life and death of Christ is the only thing to give you hope in this life and the one to come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut us deep to the heart. And I pray that that may happen this morning. Teach us, Father, to rend our hearts and not our garments over our sin. May we be broken by it. And come to you asking, begging for your mercy. Thank you for giving us Christ and the good news of salvation through him. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.